friends, welcome to the Non Sequitur podcast, breaking it down so you don't have to. I'm Kelsey. And I'm Jake. And this is a podcast about fallacies and the people who make them. So we're going to start this week's episode with an event we've pulled from this week's pop culture in our new segment, Faux Pop. This week on Faux Pop, we present Misery at the Met, AOC versus the World. Yeah, so... This episode is actually getting out a little bit later than expected because we had some audio issues. We had a debacle. So the Met Gala is not as current, but it still was just like a couple weeks ago. So AOC wore a Tax the Rich dress to the Met Gala, and Jake and I are going to break that down so you don't have to. Jake, do you have any points on this before I kind of dive in what are what are your thoughts because a lot of people were upset they were saying oh donald trump jr called her a fraud because she was saying tax the rich while she was hanging out with a bunch of wealthy left-wing elites quote according to him and then there were some socialists like self-described socialists who were mad for similar reasons and said she's not practicing what she preaches and that she isn't using her platform to do things that help the causes she claims to be about Well, Kelsey, I loved the dress. I loved the message. I loved the setting. Uh, I was a little concerned when I thought she had paid to get in there, but now that I know that the dress was borrowed and the ticket was free, I don't really have any issues with it. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that the only exclusive critique that I could find was because they felt that they were hypocritical or performative, which maybe it is performative, but that in the scope of the argument itself that doesn't matter none of that matters actually the thing about the facts that oh well she was hanging out with wealthy elites and said tax the rich she could be naked on the top of the empire state building and say tax the rich and it would still be true This is a classic example of a particular type of ad hominem, which is a fallacy that means against the man. And it's basically when you attack a person instead of their argument. This is specifically a tu quoque or a you too argument, which basically argues that a person doesn't practice what they preach. So you can disregard their argument. If Ted Bundy were, when he was alive, were to say, hey, killing is wrong, You can't just say, oh, well, Ted Bundy said that, so we don't have to listen. Um, That's not the way things work. So it doesn't actually matter where AOC is or what she's wearing or who she's with. When she says tax the rich, you still have to look at the statement tax the rich. And I think the statement is, you know, fine. Actually, a, a lot of Americans really do think that we should be taxing the ultra-rich. So the only critique I could find of AOC was not of the argument, but just that she was like a fraud. So they, so people were like, oh, we don't have to listen to the tax the rich message because she was at the Met Gala, which makes no sense because where someone is and who they're with doesn't, it doesn't matter. You have to look at, you have to separate like the person from their argument and nobody was even looking at the argument they were just mad that she was there which again she didn't pay to get in so yeah yeah, those are my thoughts at the met gala surrounded by those ultra rich that's the best place to say tax the rich 
Yeah, there was um, a lot of, I saw it was on the news or in an article somewhere, but basically the Google searches for tax the rich went like sky high. Also, I don't know, I really like fashion, so I watch Hot Modes. He's it's a YouTube channel. I watch Hot Modes breakdown of all of the outfits and actually there's a theme for the Met Gala. Like the fashion, nobody follows it, but it's supposed to be a theme. And the theme was American independence and it was like specifically supposed to take inspiration from like this American fashion book. And anyway, so Hot Mode brought up a good point that it was very on theme because Americans are very worried about taxes. A lot of presidents get elected because of the way they feel on taxes. People, it's a big thing. So it was really on brand for like getting people to talk about it. The same thing with Cara Delevingne. Cara Delevingne wore that um, shirt that said Peg the Patriarchy. And that, I'm like, I understand that it was a bunch of, I don't think AOC is white, but Cara Delevingne is like a white woman. And I know there was another white woman who had something about feminism and people were like, oh, white feminism, white feminism. And I am a white woman, so I am not going to try to speak on that aspect of it. But just because they're white women at the Met Gala doesn't mean that even if they are being hypocritical even if they are being performative their messages themselves like for the sake of what we're looking at for this podcast it doesn't actually matter whether they're being performative maybe in the scope of how it like impacts society but even if someone's just being performative it doesn't mean that you can logically cast their argument aside because again if ted bundy says hey murdering is wrong He's being a hypocrite, but that doesn't mean that the statement murdering is wrong is incorrect. So that's the lens through which we're looking at this. So those are, that's, that's, that's why I think on that. Tell me, Kelsey, if you went to the Met Gala, what message would you put on a dress? I don't know. It would probably depend on the theme and I would never be at the Met Gala. And I, I don't know. That's so far out of the scope of my reality no idea what about you what about you jake i don't know why i asked i don't have an answer either great (laughs) well the met gala is so far outside of the realm of my life but i do like the the fashion and again i'm a white woman and i don't want to i'm very for intersectional um feminism for sure and i understand the way that second wave feminism turned it into this white woman feminism that was not inclusive in any capacity so i'm not saying the way that it impacts society is right i'm saying that for the sake of the logic of the statement you can't just say oh she's at the met gala or that's a dumbass white woman saying that and disregard what they say that is a fallacy you can say okay what they said was true but you know, it's performative and not helpful. And there's an additional scope there. But I saw a lot of people being like, yeah, you just don't have to listen to them because they're white women, like, at the Met Gala saying it. And that's not, that's not true. The whoever says it, it doesn't have a bearing on the actual words themselves and what they mean. So that's what I think on that. Yeah, uh, I, I think you hit a bunch of good points there.
So this week's episode episode is going to be on Joe Biden, Papa Joe, Sleepy Joe, lots of nicknames, kind of a complicated figure in politics. We're going to kind of do a similar style or yeah, style as what we did last episode where we're going to go over kind of a biography, early life, and then we're going to go into how Biden got into politics and his current presidency and some of his high points since he was like a senator in Delaware for 36 years. So there's kind of a lot of context coming. Hopefully it will be informative. And then after that, we're going to go over some fallacies that he's committed, first and foremost in this presidency, covering Afghanistan, because that's probably the biggest freaking debacle of his presidency, and that he's handled it terribly, and I think everybody kind of agrees on that. He's also, we'll get to that later, I'm not going to derail us like I always do. So we're going to do that. And then we're going to get to some lighter, more funny stuff because Joe Biden has a very short temper and just is like mean to people when they question him. So we've got some more, some context, and then we've got some serious fallacies that are going to be kind of heavy. And then after that, we've got some funny stuff. So Jake, I will let you start out and take it away with Joe Biden's biography. Well, sure thing, Kels. Here's some information I pulled both from his Wikipedia page and from his official WhiteHouse.gov biography. Uh, So Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. was born November 20th, 1942. This was nearly a year after the U.S. had joined World War II, just to give you an idea of how insanely old he is. He was born in Scranton, Pennsylvania, to Joseph Robinette Biden Sr. and Catherine Eugenia Finnegan Biden his, Those are some, like, very intense names. Yeah, yeah, they are uh, pretty Catholic. It, I I can tell. He's also so old. Yeah. I always forget. He is, he is, is so old. Is he, like, 81 old. this year? Something like that. I, I mean, he is so old. I often... He looks really good for being, like, 81. Yeah. But fair enough. My grand... He's probably a little younger than that, maybe like 78, because I think my granddad's 81. And Okay, yeah. my grandpa is 78. Okay. Yeah, so I mean, that's super old, especially to like, a lot of people are not in good health at that point, which mm-hmm. in one of our fallacies coming up, Joe Biden like, uh, challenges somebody to a push-up contest so I think, so he's like feeling really hot he's he's feeling good he's feeling really good about himself even at 78 kelsey i'm 28 50 years younger than him and i don't even want to challenge people to a push-up contest you know what would be cool joe biden versus bernie sanders in a push-up oh my goodness. Uh, competition because they're both old as hell You're but right. they're both also in really good shape like bernie like works out all the time so i would love to see that like i i think that should be i think that's content that i think the american millennials want to see and maybe even gen z yeah i don't know anything gen z scares me i don't know much about gen z they can confu- my sister is in gen z and she is pure chaos yeah so like just absolute unabridged chaotic neutral 
energy at all times. So anyway, um, maybe Gen Z also wants to see that. But I think me and you wanting to see it, we can extrapolate is very that the entire millennial generation wants to see it. That is not an overgeneralization. Or I'm sorry, a hasty generalization. Tell Definitely not. What would you rather see? Uh, Biden versus Bernie or Thor versus Eddie Hall? Biden versus Bernie. Okay. That's the content. Yeah, what about you? Uh, well, yeah, he... You've got a point there. It'll probably be a lot better fight watching uh, Biden Bernie, won't it? And do you mean Thor, the strong man? Because he's doing boxing. Yes, uh, half Thor Julius Bjornsson and former, also former strongman competitor Eddie Hall. They've got a bit of a beef going on, so they've both they've both decided to do a boxing match. Okay, that's just a whole. I could talk so much this about This is a big part of my life. I, I forgot that it's not a big part of other people's lives. No, I have a guilty pleasure. I follow the celebrity boxing thing angrily, like, very closely, especially, like, the Jake Paul stuff. Because yeah, anytime I can see a Paul brother get beat up, I, I'm here for it. Me, me too. And nobody can, like, nobody can seem to get the job done. Seeing Jake Paul get beat decked by tyron woodley and fall down into those ropes with his stupid freaking horrible hairline showing how bad it was and like the fear in his eyes gave me more serotonin i can't even think of anything else that gives me that much serotonin and dopamine simultaneously as seeing that that was it that was the highlight of my year this Mm -hmm. year which is sad but it's true. Yeah, gosh, when was the last time I felt that good? Was it when that bird landed on Bernie's podium? Probably. Like in 2015? Yes. Yeah, yep, that was a good time. I got married like a couple years ago, and that was really good. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that's so, yeah, that's that... true. I was at your wedding. That was a pretty good time. Anyway, we're not talking about how little joy we have. We're we're going to talk about <laughs> Joe Biden. We, we don't need to say it out loud. It's implied with every word we say. Yeah, exactly. You can just tell. So anyway, I'll, I'll let you continue. But I do want to see Joe Biden versus Bernie Sanders in either a boxing, not a boxing match. Scratch that. I don't want to see that. I want to see a push-up contest. I don't want to see a contact sport with people who are in their 70s. It's, I think that's irresponsible. Biden, Bernie, hit us up. We'll get this thing set up. Yeah, exactly. And the whole five people that listen to this podcast will all be there. <laughs> so, uh, continuing where we left off in Joe Biden's biography... Uh, when he was younger, his family had some up and downs financially, but those had pretty well stabilized by the time he entered high school. Uh, and also as a child, he had a stutter. So uh, in spite of that, or maybe because of that, he became a sports standout and also the president of his high school class. He graduated from the University of Delaware with a double major in history and political science. That's kind of like uh, you. Yeah. That's so close. Hits me pretty hard. I had a double major in history and philosophy. You're halfway to the first degree that you need to be the president. Yeah. 
like I said, I'm pretty much 50 years younger than Joe Biden, so, uh, Joe Biden, I'm coming for you. I'll be exactly where you are in 49 years. Oh, boy. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's... I don't know. <laughs> that's not a good promise to make. <laughs> I was gonna say, I'm not... Like, I love you so much, but I just... I don't know. <laughs> little uncomfortable with that promise but i'll be here to support you yeah no the podcast is like the first step for you getting into politics this is it this is mm -hmm. the move and then you're gonna get the political science degree which is the more relevant of the two majors that he had and then you're gonna do a lifetime in politics it'll uh, be perfect i don't know i, I think uh, having this podcast is going to be pretty well equivalent to graduating from the syracuse college of law so uh, we're kind of at the same level yeah, exactly. Just like we're doing our, just like people who do their own research on vaccines. Like we're, it's the same. <laughs> like it's like, yeah. Like, I mean, homemade YouTube videos on vaccine information, doing a podcast to get your law degree. <laughs> anything, anything is possible these days. So yeah, definitely the same. All right, back on track. So, uh, like I said, he later graduated from the Syracuse College of Law. Uh, his political aspirations actually began in college, but uh, they did not materialize until after he had graduated and started practicing law. Uh, that's when he got involved with some uh, Republican and Democratic local, local politicians. Uh, he uh, hung out with both sides. Uh, he ended up actually falling onto the Democrat side, uh, registering as a Democrat. That checks out, because he's never been very radical in either direction and has kind of a mixture of views, so I'm not necessarily surprised to hear that he started out kind of dipping his toes in both parties. Yeah, surprise, surprise, he's a left-leaning centrist. Okay, I'm going to let everybody know how he got into politics, some high points of the career, and then some stuff from the current presidency. There's a lot here. One thing that I think is important to mention in this conversation is Joe's relationship with grief and tragedy, because he's had a ton of grief and tragedy in his life, and almost a lot, a lot like, almost all of it has been in the public eye, so... I think that's something that you have to take into account here. So yeah, let's get into Joby and his political career. Also, I watched like Children of the Corn a couple weeks ago and there's a Joby character in there. And while I was doing research for this, I was like, Joby. So I'm just going to call Joe Biden Joby moving forward. So Joby got into politics at the age of 29. He was one of the youngest people to ever be elected to the Senate, and he won by fewer than 3,000 votes. It was like a grassroots type deal, a lot of door knocking, but it was not a runaway election by any means. A lot of door, a lot of, what do they call it, beating the streets? Is, is that what they call it? If not, cut that out. I don't know what that means, but I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, I don't... I've never heard that, and I kind of hate it. Well, I just Googled it, and nothing's coming up, so cut that out, cut that out. We're probably going to leave it in if I had to guess, so... Okay, 
Joe Biden did not beat the streets for this election. He did door knocking. The streets. Combing the streets? Is Pounding. that what you said? Pounding the streets? No, yeah. you're just making sexual innuendos about... Yeah, you know, beating the streets? Pounding the sheets? No! No, I don't. I don't want to know anything about that. I swear there's something like that. I don't uh, think so. <laughs> I don't, hold on. I, I don't think so. I'm seeing pound the pavement. Okay. That's like running, right? To travel on foot, to walk or run. For example, to uh, pound the street looking, or pound the pavement looking for a job. Okay. So he pounded the pavement to go door knocking. That, okay. That sounds, that, okay. I back off a little bit. That, that. You were kind of close. Yeah, it was in there so somewhere. So they did, yeah, so they did that. Within weeks of that, his wife and daughter, Nelia and Naomi, were killed in an auto accident. And the and that auto accident also left his two sons, Hunter and Bo, critically injured. It is worth mentioning that Bo has since passed away from brain cancer. He passed away in 2015. So Biden was sworn into office by his son's hospital bedsides. He became well-known for commuting between Wilmington and Washington every day by train so that he could be present with his sons. He originally was, like, driving a car, but then he started doing the train thing, and that was really popular. Like, that was even in some of his campaign commercials. Do you remember that? Yeah, if there's two things people know about Joe Biden right now, it's that... uh... He's had a lot of family issues and grieving, like you mentioned, and also that he rides the train. And that he's from Scranton. He hits that pretty hard. Yeah, we're really trying to dip his toe into that office crowd. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe it worked. But, yeah. So that is the beginning. Then he was remarried in 1977 to the queen herself, Jill Jacobs, Ooh, now Jill Biden. We stand Jill Biden in this house. And they had a daughter in 1980 named Ashley. After that, he was the senator in Delaware for 36 years. And during this time, he had some really good things that he did. And then he had some really bad things that he did. He's quite the dichotomy. He is widely credited with writing and spearheading the Violence Against Women Act in 1990. This act upped the severity of penalties for violence against women, and it offered more support to survivors. He also had leading roles on the Judiciary Committee as well as the Foreign Relations Committee. He chaired confirmation hearings for five justices, including Robert Bork and Clarence Thomas. And Jake, I think you had something you wanted to say on this particularly, because it had some significance that I did not realize. Yeah, I just wanted to mention a bit about uh, Robert Bork. So in 1988, Joe Biden blocked the nomination of Robert Bork to the Supreme Court, which was uh, a, a pretty chill thing to do. Because uh, with Bork, uh, the nomination not going through, he was replaced by Anthony Kennedy, who was a lot more of a centrist conservative, uh, and he came to be known as a swing vote on the Senate. So uh, twice, Anthony Kennedy voted to defend same-sex marriage. Oh. Uh, once in Obergefell versus Hodges, and once in U.S. versus Windsor. So uh, if... Uh, 
we cannot say for sure, but it's very likely that Bork would not have voted the same way Kennedy did on these things. So uh, it's thanks to this uh, blocking the nomination that we have same-sex marriage legal in the U.S. right now. Oh, Joe. Okay. Uh, two, I didn't know that. Yeah, two other good things Anthony Kennedy voted on. Uh, another 5-4 decision was Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which upheld Roe versus Wade. Uh, Anthony Kennedy voted with the Liberals on that one to support Roe versus Wade. And also, uh, I think it might have been 1992, Roper versus Simmons. Um, I think it was a 6-3 decision. Uh, Kennedy voted with the uh, Liberals to say that the uh, government cannot kill underage offendants. Yeah, uh, so, that's uh, yeah, a yeah. good call. Anthony Kennedy agreed that the state ca- shouldn't kill kids. Okay. Yeah, no, that's really good. So you mean like the death penalty, like the state can't give the death penalty to minors. Right. Okay. Yeah, no, I, wow, that's a very influential thing. I had no idea that Joe Biden would, was involved in that. So that's very helpful. He was chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So uh, that, that was one of the things that he was kind of in control of was determining how that nomination process went. Okay. Very helpful. He was also heavily involved in advocating the 1994 federal crime bill, which upped severity of prison sentences, put more police on the streets, and widened application of the death penalty. In recent years, this has been bad for his image because it's been credited with being a leading cause of mass incarceration, which he is kind of, he's against now. But at the time, this bill had bipartisan support and it was not controversial. So it's kind of like it had an unintended outcome or at least a not well-researched outcome. There was some oversight and now he has he it's not that he's backtracked is that he is against mass incarceration and from my understanding has been trying to speak against it and put things into place to help stop the pipeline to prison especially for people of color because obviously this affects people of color almost not not exclusively but much more than it does white folks but yeah, you know, he, uh, every politician has their ups and downs. Sometimes you block a Supreme Court justice and save uh, same-sex marriage. Sometimes you support a crime bill and create mass incarceration across the country. Yeah, exactly. And he was heavily involved in advocating it. He, like, cha- like kind of championed it. So, kind of bad. He voted against authorizing an Iraq war when George H.W. Bush was in office because apparently Homeboy wanted to have a war on iraq when he was in office he said joe b said no and then joe biden voted in favor of the iraq war in 2002 he opposed the war later after it came to light that the testimony they had heard that hussein had weapons of mass destruction turned out to be untrue and he did not want more troops to go over in 2007 he had two failed presidential runs which i didn't know And, of course, he was the VP from 2008 to 2016 under Barack Obama. He was very involved with foreign policy during his time as VP, especially encouraging Obama to lessen American military presence in Afghanistan. He actually, while he was on the campaign trail to be VP, 
he went to Afghanistan and did like a tour there to see and speak with people, which is not something that VPs normally do. He actually was a very influential and involved VP from that standpoint, from my understanding. Yeah, so uh, he, he uh, entered the Senate, uh, spent, spent about 40 years there, uh, ran for president in 2020. So we can just say that until then, he was Biden his time. Ooh, hated that. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll jump through. We're going to skip over his run that subsequently got him to be the president that we have today president 46 right 46th president of the united states that sounds right yeah because i know trump was 45 because that's like on all of his merch and stuff so i know trump was 45 and i can count so that means that joe biden is 46 so in the first 100 days of his presidency things were actually going relatively well Pew Research Center stated that at the 100-day mark, 72% of Americans approved of Biden's handling of distributing vaccines, and 67% approved of the COVID relief bill that went into place in March. The American Jobs Plan was also kind of being supported. It wasn't overwhelming, but the public had solid support. And I believe the American Jobs Plan is the infrastructure bill. So I believe those are one and the same. And a lot, most people like that he carried himself like a president and thought that he cared about America. So that is what people thought in the first 100 days. Let's just say the previous president had set the bar pretty low for uh, how a president should look. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So now, fast forward, and we've got the Delta variant running rampant and everything that happened in Afghanistan. So... A big part of the more heavy fallacies we're going to deal with is going to be the speech that he made kind of justifying the abrupt military pullout in Afghanistan. To understand this conversation in the full context, Jake is going to do a small segment on the origination of the Taliban because America had their hands in that. So we've been destabilizing Afghanistan for a very long time. So Jake, you can go ahead with that segment. I think it's very helpful to know this. Well, Kelsey, the story of the Taliban actually begins uh, before they started. So the history of the Taliban actually begins in 1978 with the Soviet invasion and occupation of Afghanistan. Uh, This occupation lasted until 1991 when the Soviet Union fell. The Soviet-supported Afghan government also fell at that time, and the country descended into a civil war. The Taliban rose with the goals to end the civil war and install a government that would enforce their interpretation of Islamic law. Another one of the groups that arose at this time was also Al-Qaeda. These rebel groups were uh, the Mujahideen that the U.S. was supporting to keep them away from uh, Soviet influence. Yes, yeah. So kind of to double-click down into that, I still hate myself that I use that in day-to-day conversation. But the Mujahideen were just a general rebel group made up of 
the Taliban, some other like religious extremists, regular rebels that just didn't like because the Soviets kind of what happened, they had the civil war and then was it that during the civil war, the government that came into power, it was very communist. Like everybody, some people really liked it because there was access to healthcare. Women had more rights. There were good things happening. But, but at also, the same time, kind of like in a Stalinist government, there were uh, detractors of the government that would just disappear. Yes, exactly. So some people didn't want to speak out against the government. They really liked it. But there were these rebel groups that were like, nah. And obviously the U.S. is very anti-communism, which I think most of the world is. The Stalin communism model. It's not good. Like, communism has never worked. We're not advocating for communism on, on this podcast. But the U.S. had a vested interest in ensuring that Afghanistan did not end up long-term being communist. So they actually funded, funneled money through Pakistan to, and Pakistan gave money, guns, and training to the Mujahideen, which included the Taliban. And then that's how the Taliban eventually came to be, is, is through that. So there's that. Yeah, so I mentioned that the U.S. was supporting some of these rebel groups to uh, uh, keep them to keep them away from Soviet influence. Well, the way they did this was by funneling money through the Pakistani government. So, yes. so the early Taliban had received money, guns, and training manuals from the U.S., just not directly from U.S. forces. They came from the Pakistani government, who received them from the U.S. Yes, and the U.S. was aware that they were going to go to the Mujahideen. That was, like, the whole point. So, yeah, that happened. So the U.S. has been kind of destabilized. So then when the Soviet Union pulls out, the U.S. also pulls out and leaves this cavity where there's no government in place or anything. So in that vacuum is when the Taliban came and kind of took over. So I was mistaken earlier when I was like, yeah, the da-da-da, but it was while the Soviet presence, the government that they built, was when the U.S. was funneling money through Pakistan. And then once the Soviet Union fell and they left, America also left or stopped funneling this money. So there was a power vacuum, and that's when the Taliban came into power because they had all the money and guns and training manuals from the U.S., and they were also super about Sharia law and not letting women do anything and killing people and all sorts of good stuff. So the Taliban were able to maintain some degree of control, uh, varying degrees of control in Afghanistan until they were sent into hiding by the U.S. invasion in October 2001, uh, at which point they needed to lay low and consolidate power and unify. And when the U.S. withdrew troops uh, just a few, min a few weeks back, uh, they reemerged in force. So, to give some more context into the timeline here, then we're going to get into the speech. There's just a lot of context here that kind of needs to be understood in order to have a good conversation about this. So, in February of 2019, the U.S. and the Taliban signed a peace deal which outlined complete American withdrawal of troops by May of 2021. 
the peace deal was not like a peace treaty. It was basically just a deal to say we can enter into peace conversations. So in September of 2019, Donald Trump calls off the peace talks because a U.S. soldier was killed by the Taliban. Surprise, surprise. Jumped a year later in September of 2020, Donald Trump authorized the release of 5,000 Taliban members, 400 of which had committed major crimes. This was done in exchange for 1,000 Afghan security force prisoners. Many of these individuals are thought to have been involved in the overthrow of Kabul, and the Afghan government expressed their concerns about the release of these people. But America still pressured them to do it. It's important to note that other Taliban members had been released during Obama's presidency. Trump wasn't the only person to release Taliban members, but he was the only person to release 5,000 of them. That's a ton. Uh, apparently, Trump uh, has said recently that he never intended on following the agreement anyways, so I guess it was fine to release those members if he planned on keeping troops there anyways. That doesn't even... Oh, my God. So November of 2020, America announces an aim to cut troops in half to around 2,500 by January of 2021, which is just days before Biden was inaugurated. In April of 2021, Biden aims to have all troops out by 9-11 of 2021. Obviously, there is meaning there since 9-11 is the horrible terrorist attack that caused the initial invasion anyway. July 5th of 2021, the U.S. leaves the Bagram airfield without telling the base's new Afghan commander. We just left. August 10th of 2021, the White House continues to insist that the Taliban takeover, quote, is not inevitable, even with the speedy withdrawal of American troops. On the 15th, the Afghanistan government collapses as the Taliban take over Kabul and public officials flee the country. 13 American troops and about 170 Afghan citizens were killed by suicide bombings close to the airport within the subsequent days. At this point, Joe Biden does a speech to try to say, hey, I stand by this decision. So this whole speech, I want to cover some quotes from it, but the whole speech he does to try to say, hey, this is what I did and I stand by it, is really just one big false dichotomy and a lot of red herring. So the first quote that I want to dive into is that Biden says the real choice in Afghanistan was, quote, between leaving and escalating. So that's painting that he had no other choice, which this whole speech is going to paint that way. But it's worth mentioning that a lot of political members and a lot of his advisors have come out and said, actually, there was a third option. We did not try to renegotiate the agreement at all. And so while he tries to paint it like it, there was just this option and this option, it seems like there were multiple. So that's a false dichotomy. My predecessor, the former president, signed an agreement with the Taliban to remove U.S. troops by May the 1st, just months after I was inaugurated. It included no requirement that the Taliban work out a cooperative governing arrangement with the Afghan government. But it did authorize the release of 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders, 
among those who just took control of Afghanistan. By the time I came to office, the Taliban was in its strongest military position since 2001. So what do you what do you get from that, Jake? I get a big fat red herring. Yeah. Uh, also, you would call that a false dichotomy because he's put because he's pushing all the blame onto the previous administration. They made this decision. There was nothing I could do about it. Yeah, there was no other option. It was either I put everybody in danger by not following the agreement and leaving troops there, or I do it. And again, all of his advisors, there's actually a new book that just came out. I did not write the name of it down like a moron, but a new book just came out. It was some journalists that broke the story and put it out there, but it states that Joe Biden overruled his Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, and his Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, who wanted a slower withdrawal. Austin actually wrote and presented the president a different three to four stage withdrawal plan, but Joby was like, nah, we're just going to do it. So this whole time, there's plenty of speeches and interviews where he's saying, no, 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 there's not going to be any trouble with the Taliban. But people are telling him the whole time that things are looking more dismal than what he's thinking. It's also worth mentioning that America was providing air support and logistical support to the Afghan army, the foot soldiers. So Joe Biden also in this speech, a couple quotes will come up with, is that he blames it that the we can't defend Afghanistan because the troops won't even fight for their own land. But in reality... A lot of American military personnel that I've just heard in interviews and seen on the news have said no army of foot soldiers can do really anything of any consequence if they don't have air support and logistical support. So the U.S. literally just left like overnight and like didn't even tell the new like the Afghan commander at Bagram Airfield. We just left and we left all of our stuff there. We left everything there which doesn't make any sense. So anyway, there's, there's a lot to this, but America was providing, still providing this very pivotal service for the army in Afghanistan. And then we pulled it away with no warning and no transition plan. And then like blamed it on them that they wouldn't fight when they're like, yeah, no, we have no logistical support. I'm just going to get slaughtered. No thanks. So anyway, that's worth mentioning. So this, it's a big false false dichotomy and a red herring because he's trying to say hey that la that administration authorized the release of 5000 prisoners last year which that's not what anybody's asking him they want to know why he pulled the troops out of afghanistan it's not like joe biden just found out that those prisoners were released he knew they were released and he still pulled the military so that's a whole different issue. Even if the Trump administration, that's obviously seems like a bad choice on their part. It seems like it was a big mistake. Surprise, surprise. But the release of the 5,000 prisoners does not, like it doesn't equate to what this speech is supposed to be about. The speech is about why he pulled the military out so quickly while knowing that those 5,000 prisoners, Taliban war criminals were released last year. So that's a red herring. He just doesn't want to answer. He's like, look at what the Trump administration did. And the whole speech is supposed to be about his decisions. The events we're seeing now are sadly proof that no amount of military force would ever deliver a stable 
united, secure Afghanistan, as known in history as the graveyard of empires. What's happening now could just as easily happen five years ago or 15 years in the future. What do you think about that one, Jake? That comes across to me as a slippery slope. Yeah, like, well, because I made this horrible decision, that obviously means that even if we did the right research and we did take, like, a longer crack at it and we actually did this well and blah, 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 it still wouldn't work. This means, this one bad decision means that no matter what we did, it would have turned out the same way. And it just does not appear that that is true. So that's definitely like a slippery slope. He's just trying to save face in this speech, obviously. But it's also, I hate, it's kind there's an ad hominem in there as well. It's kind of hidden, but he says, you know, Afghanistan is known in history as the graveyard of empires. One, it's the Soviet Union and Americans' fault that that, or I, rather, I'm sorry, America's fault that that is the case. Like, we destabilize them and then blame them for being unstable. So there's an ad hominem in there that's like, well, Afghanistan is the history, is known in history as the graveyard of empires. We can't save them. Look, they're the graveyard of empires. They're just a bad nation or they're just a nation that... We, we could not stabilize them no matter what we did because that's just the nation that they are. And that's just kind of an attack on Afghanistan, again, instead of talking about the issue. The issue is why he pulled... We were beyond trying to stabilize Afghanistan. We really were just in a place where we were like, hey, the Taliban needs to not like take over. And of course we wanted the government that we had helped put in place to stick, but... It seems like, you know, I, I think everybody kind of knew that we had not stabilized Afghanistan like as much as we thought we did, even on the front end, or a lot of people were trying to tell Joe Biden this. So anyway, he's just trying to say that we couldn't have done anything different and have a big slippery slope as to why this would have happened five years ago or 15 years from now. It doesn't matter when we did it or how we did it. It would have been the same thing, even if all these other details would have been different and just kind of crapping on Afghanistan. So there's that one. I'm also glad you brought up the ad hominem because uh, a stable, united, secure Afghanistan that is known in history as the graveyard of empires, that sounds exactly like something that would have come out of Trump's mouth. So if Joe Biden's trying to differentiate himself, he did not do it there. No, no. And again, he just blames it all. Again, the question is not... Was it possible to stabilize and unite Afghanistan? The question is, why did you pull out the troops when a bunch of people were telling you not to, that things were not stable? Why? And he says, well, the other administration did this, and I didn't have any other choice, even though I did. And yeah, Afghanistan's just the graveyard of empires, so like, what could we have done anyway? So there's a lot of aspects there that are just they're just fallacies and it doesn't actually answer the question he just says yeah i did it and it would have happened like this regardless and that's just not true the last one i'm interested to get your thoughts on the last one is so i'm left again to ask of those who argue that we should stay how many more generations of america's daughters and sons 
would you have me send to fight Afghans, Afghanistan's civil war? And Afghan troops will not. Again, we pulled air support and logistical support with no transition plan. So we kind of left the Afghan troops out to dry. They felt abandoned and they didn't want to go get slaughtered. I can't say that I would do something different in their shoes. So I can't critique that in any capacity, that choice of America just pulled out. We don't have the resources now to fight. So why do it? Not weighing in on whether that's right or wrong. I'm weighing in on that. I can't promise I wouldn't make the same decision. The interesting part to me here is another slippery slope where he says, how many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's civil war? Nobody was asking you to send more generations of people. It was bipartisan. It was bipartisan. Everybody wanted out. We were saying, it's also kind of a straw man. It's kind of a misrepresentation of the argument. People are like, hey, why didn't you listen to your advisor that said that we should do this in a three to four step process or that we should slowly continue to slowly trickle out troops out of the area? And he says, well, how many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send? Well, nobody's asking you to do that. It's a misrepresentation. It's also a slippery slope that just because we stay another month does not mean that we have to stay more generations or just because we stay another couple months or just because we adjust the plan based on changing circumstances does not mean that we have to spend another 20 years there. And he's acting as if, if he would have extended it by any amount of time, we would have spent more generations fighting the war. And I just don't think that, I just don't agree with that at all. Like we could have pulled out in three months or three weeks, or there's so many decisions that go into it. It's not like if he would have locked in a certain amount of time that maybe made more sense, we would have been locked into another 20 years, which is kind of what he's acting like. I would like to point out that it, it, in a vacuum, it certainly does come across as like a slippery slope and a straw man. But what we have been in Afghanistan for 20 years. We've tried to pull out several times and it just has not worked out. So it, it's always or we'll end up just staying in and staying in, which has happened in the U.S.'s previous history with Afghanistan. But I guess also we'll see if this one sticks because uh, the way it's gone so far... It, it might be America decides we need to go back in and stabilize again anyways. Yeah. So, and again, like with context, there is, this does hold a little bit of water, but just because we stay for a little longer it, each time, it does not mean that we have to stay for another 20 years. That would mean that we would have to move deadlines multiple times and rework the scope of why we're in Afghanistan just because he said, Hey, we're changing the terms to be because he's committed in his presidency or was committed in his presidency to get all the troops out. So within the context of that and him having four years to to do it again, I'm not saying it would take that long, but him just saying, oh, yeah, well, if I would have moved the deadline, we would have been there for generations more is not necessarily true. So I just wanted to to point to point that out. Do you have anything else on that one before we get into like the more funny lighter-hearted stuff that joe has done the push-up contest and all that iq test he's he's got some funny ones i think i've said all i intend to on it perfect so 
forgive us if there's any information that we left out. This is obviously a very complex situation and we're representing it to the best of our knowledge. We are not in the military. We don't have a background in military um, tactical or strategy stuff. So we're making the best sense of it that we can, just trying to break down the statements themselves as whether they are fallacious or not. We're not going to have all the answers and if our takes are like bad on it, then I apologize and I'm assuming Jake also apologizes. I do. Perfect. So, again, please don't cancel us. We are really doing our best. We've got some bad takes. Biden was on the campaign trail in 2019 when he called Marla Gorman, a retired Iowa farmer, a damn liar. Gorman had told Biden he was too old to be president, questioned Joe's son Hunter's closeness with a Ukrainian gas company as well. The, the gas company is Burisma. I guess it had some scandals in the past. I don't know anything about that. It's not necessarily relevant for what we're talking about. But basically, he was asked a question... And Joe says, No, I know you do. By the way, that's why I'm not sedentary. I don't like it up and, and, and no, let them let, 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 let go. Let them go. Look, the reason I'm running is because I've been around a long time and I know more than most people know. And I can get things done. That's why I'm running. And you want to check my shape on it, let's do push-ups together, man. Let's, do, let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. But look, look, here's the deal. Here's the deal. It, it, looks, it looks like... So he called the guy fat. And his PR people were really, <laughs> really upset about this one, obviously. But this is an ad hominem and like a red herring. He likes these. They're very common because he's asked a question. And instead of, like, instead of dealing with the concerns or answering the question, he just says, you're a liar, you're fat, and I would beat you in an IQ test. <laughs> And a push-up competition. I suspect so, that fat one was a Freudian slip. He probably meant to say, like, look, look, Jack. And it just came out, oh, yeah. look, look, fat. Yeah, probably. Well, I mean, it happens. He's got some horrible gaffes. Like, I mean, it's, oh, Joe. Joby. So, anyway, it newsflash, friends, if you're in an argument and you don't have any good points and you just, like, start insulting someone, you may feel like you won, but you did not win. You actually lost. You committed a fallacy. It's an ad hominem and possibly a red herring because a red herring is when instead of answering the concerns of a question, you try to pivot to a different issue. So he's saying, you're a liar. By the way, if we did push-ups in an IQ test, like I'm smarter than you in what, and like I'm stronger than you. And like, so whatever you asked me, like, I think the issue is actually that, you know, you don't know what you're talking about for whatever. So he just completely dodges the question, which is a very politician thing to do. So I thought that was funny. Jake, I'll let you get into your example. Yeah, I wanted to bring up uh, Biden's willingness to work with segregationists. So what Joe Biden says is, I know the new new left tells me that I'm, this is old fashioned. Well, guess what? If we can't reach a consensus in our system, what happens? It encourages and demands the abuse of power by a president. That's what it does. You have to be able to reach consensus under our system, our constitutional system of separation of powers. 
Mr. Biden then brings up a deceased Georgia senator, a guy like Herman Talmadge, one of the meanest guys I ever knew. You get on the list of all of these things, well, guess what? At least there was some civility. We got things done. We didn't agree on much of anything, but we got things done. We got it finished. But today, you look at the other side and there you're the enemy. Not the opposition, the enemy. We don't talk to each other anymore. So I looked at this one and I was one... I don't... I don't know that it's fallacious, but it's bad. And it's like something that we definitely need to call attention to and his like bad takes i i think maybe that's a slippery slope i don't know enough about it it seems to me like possibly a slippery slope like his argument is if you break it down into kind of the form of an argument is something to the extent of i have to work with segregationists otherwise the president it, otherwise, the system demands an abuse of power by the president. And I don't know that stagnation in, like, the House and in the Senate demands the abuse of power by a president. It seems like a stretch to me to say, if I don't work with segregationists or segregation, yeah, segregationists? Why can't I ever get that word? Yeah. Segregationists. If I don't work... If I don't work with segregationists and we can't reach, then we can't reach a consensus. And then if we can't reach a consensus, then the president is going to abuse their power. Like Which that I seems mean, kind I, I of guess like he does a have a point. Uh, if we can't reach consistent consensus in Congress, things can't get through Congress. If the president wants to do anything, he has to act unilaterally. It's just, you're working with segregationists. Uh, you're making decisions that don't just affect you, and they're making decisions that will specifically harm, pe- like, not you peoples. Yeah. Like I said, I don't know that there's a fallacy here, but it, it is bad. Like, he, I mean, he doesn't have to work with segregationists or segregationists. I don't know why I can't get that word right. So, maybe not a fallacy here, but it's just a bad take. It's a very bad take. I've got one. This one's funny. Um, So you're arguably the candidate with the greatest advantage in this race. You've been the vice president. You weren't burdened down by the impeachment trials. So, or in the participation. So how do you explain the performance in Iowa and why should the voters believe that you can win the national election? It's a good question. Number one. I was a Democratic caucus. You ever been to a caucus? No, you haven't. You're a lying dog-faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're, you, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. That's a rough one. And this college student went on the news later. It was like, it was really embarrassing to be called a lying dog-faced pony soldier by the previous VP because I asked a valid question. And she was basically like, I'm a nobody, like, why can't he just answer my question? Why does he get so freaked out? So guess what, friends, everybody listening, the whole five people that listen to this, that's an ad hominem. If someone asks you a question and you don't answer the question, especially if it's a reasonable question, and you say you're a lying dog-faced pony soldier, and then you, like, accuse them that they haven't been to a caucus whenever you have no idea who they are, that's an ad hominem, and that's a fallacy. So, 
And where does he get lying dog face ponies? Like, who says that? Like, what does that even mean? Uh, I've looked at this before. Apparently, that is a misquote from an old Western movie. Cool. Uh, so it's not even like a real thing. Yeah, he like it, just misquoted it. It's like a Native American chief says uh, uh, something to the tune of the the pony soldier with the dog's face lies. Or, okay, so he like turned that into just like a predicate like insult that he could throw at people. Mm-hmm. Apparently. How strange. Okay, so you've got a couple more that are a little more serious we're just pivoting between funny and like not yeah i did not get the notification heavy. that we were picking uh funny things to go through so my next oh, one no. is anita hill i it wasn't that it was like that we were supposed to i think it just works out like i was covering the afghanistan stuff and i was like i need to we need some find levity. something yeah exactly so you go ahead tell us about anita hill tell us about what happened with her it's pretty bad So, as we mentioned, Joe Biden was the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee. So, he not only oversaw the uh, failed nomination of Robert Bork, but he was also the chairman during the successful nomination of Clarence Thomas. During that nomination process, uh, Anita Hill came forward to bring up accusations of sexual misconduct against Clarence Thomas while she was working under him. And let's just say... The trial did not go well for her, and it did go well for Clarence Thomas. <laughs> Under a Senate Judiciary panel of all old white men, uh, a sexual misconduct victim who was a woman was not believed, and the man she accused, you know, uh, w was successful with his nomination. Surprise, surprise. So, referring to the case, Joe Biden said that he could not have acted differently without violating the basic values embodied in our constitutional system. That's what makes me so mad about Republicans. They put you in a position on so many matters of principle that in order to fight with them and have a chance of winning, you have to either have the ability to go right above the issue, or you've got to do it the way they do it and disregard the rules. I'd like to first say that this is a false dichotomy. Uh, as I mentioned, he was the chairman of the, of the committee there. So it was his decision what rules to set and how to guide the process. And in truth, he did a bad job of it. It didn't have to be either I let my committee members run wild or I bias myself towards their opponent. Uh, this is also somewhat of an ad hominem to point the blame at the Republican members of his committee. Although they were certainly the most egregious actors in the process, he also got in some shots of his own. Like when he asked her, what was the most embarrassing of all the instances that you have alleged? That, that is I'm kind uh, of speechless. I'm yeah, kind that of is not the way to talk to a sexual misconduct victim is say, oh, t tell us, tell the whole nation what was the most embarrassing part about it. That's so disgusting. Like, mm -hmm. why would you ask that? Oh, my God. Yeah, I mean, that's like this analogy that I'm about to give is going to become disanalogous very quickly. So I, you know, don't read too much into it. But it's kind of like like Ted Bundy like represented himself in his trials and was very much like asking the victims to recount details. 
Kelsey, did you watch a Ted Bundy documentary recently? Where's all this coming from? No, I just know a lot about Ted Bundy. I love like Great. Love I to mean, hear serial it. killer stuff. Yeah. I know a lot about a lot of serial killers. But well, it just reminds me because it's very sickening. Like I've seen like a million documentaries on Ted Bundy, right, wrong, or indifferent. I know some people feel that we shouldn't kind of make these people infamous. That's the reason why they do it. But anyway, he represented himself and asked his victims to recount details of the crimes that he committed and was like almost like getting off on it. Like he was just really like into it. So not that Joe Biden is doing the same thing by any means. I am not trying to draw a direct comparison. I'm saying there's like a sprinkle in there where it's like, why would you ask that if you didn't get some enjoyment out of hearing the answer? And it's very sick to get enjoyment out of hearing the answer to that kind of question. So I guess that's like what I'm not saying. I am not trying to draw a comparison between Joe Biden and Ted Bundy. It just reminded me of a particular aspect and instance that had kind of stuck in my brain as something that was, was very gross and something that I was like, oh my God, like, why would you ever do you know, that whole different level. Joe Biden is like, I think Joe Biden is overall like a good person. Um, I think he does the best he can, I guess. So again, I'm not trying, like, don't read too much into that. Like I was just saying, oh, this detail reminded me of this other detail that's much more extreme and not really the same, but just wanted to give that very, very, very shallow, almost immediately disanalogous analogy. Yeah, I also think at heart Joe Biden is a good person, but he has his own circumstances as a uh, straight white male that uh, he has blind spots. That that yes. uh, He has blind spots, so if he doesn't see them, he acts in ways that are not beneficial to people that are different from him. Uh, for yes. example... Uh, it was either when he was in high school or college. They went to a restaurant, and the restaurant refused to seat one of his black teammates. So uh, uh, at least Joe Biden, I assume other members of the team, walked out of the restaurant at the time. Yeah, yeah. he, he was never big in the civil rights movement, but he did have some parts where uh, he, he, he did have some actions uh, during it. Yeah. And then uh, in, in my next piece that I'll be covering... Uh, there's a bit of a story about how he meets a uh, gay couple and his opinion turns around there. Okay. Cool. Is there anything else that you want to say about the Anita Hill thing or do you want me to hop into probably one of his worst takes of like recent years? Yeah, there are a couple more quotes I'd like to cover. So he says, uh, the president insisted it be opened, not me. Clarence Thomas's people insist insisted it be opened. What I would do all over again, I think, that should have been conducted in a way under the Senate rules where the witness should have been able to do this in private. And it's like, well, Joe... Yeah, no shit. Yeah, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty, but you were the chairman of the committee at the time. It was your job to make sure that happened, and you didn't. Uh, once again, he attempts to pass blame as if, as if he were a cog in the machine, unfortunately directed and incapable of directing the process. Jeez, that's wild. And then, uh, <laughs> apparently he made a bit of an apology to Anita Hill, uh, years later, like, it, during this past election cycle when he was running for president. 
Um, and the way Anita Hill told the story was, he says, I am sorry if she felt like she didn't get a fair hearing. Sort of like an, I'm sorry if you were offended. Uh, which is making a straw man of her argument, attempting to mitigate her feelings from her ordeal and distance himself from his part in it. Yeah, like, I'm sorry she felt she didn't get a fair hearing. That's a real misinterpretation of, like, her concerns. Yeah, a hot take from Joe Biden. Uh, last thing I'd like to say is, uh, so uh, it does seem like he feels genuine guilt from his part in the process. Uh, in subsequent years, as you mentioned, he worked to pass the Violence Against Women Act and also campaigned for two female senators to join the, uh, at the time, all-white, all-male Senate Judiciary Committee. Yeah, it's like when he messes up, he does at least sometimes, like, kind of own up to it, or at least, like, his actions for the future, like, change in some instances, which is encouraging. Yeah, it, at least we can see growth from it, even if it was not a good thing to do and not something that w we should just forget about. So this is one that's possibly one of his worst takes of recent years. Joe Biden, while on the campaign trail in 2019, was on Charlemagne the God's podcast, Breakfast Club. Charlemagne was finishing up an interview with Biden and said, we have more questions. Basically, like, November's a while away. This was in, like, May, so we have more questions. We're, we're not sold on voting for you. VP Biden. I will. It's a long way until November. We got more questions. You got more okay. questions. But I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. I have no idea why somebody would say that. Yeah, I get it from a certain point because uh, I don't. Bi Biden's prospective agenda and Trump's like in-place policies w w benefit different groups of people very differently. I, I understand it to an extent, but to make a huge general generalization like that is uh, de definitely a fallacy. And as, like, a white man to just, like, tell a black person that if they don't vote for them, they're not black. Okay, so this is a no true Scotsman, my friends. So the argument, if you take these words and you put them into a nice argument form, Biden is saying his premise is all black people will vote for Joe Biden. This person of this black person says hey i'm not sold on voting for you and neither is a portion of the black population and joe biden says well no true black person would not vote for me all true black people will vote for me you obviously are not truly black if you're not going to vote for me so the no true scotsman is when you try to fallaciously wish away exceptions to a rule that you think exists. So in this case, it's, you know, well, black people will vote for me. And when it turns out that not all black people are going to vote for him, he's like, well, all real black people will vote for me. It's like, excuse me, take several seats. Like you are an old white guy. And there was a portion of the black population. There was a portion of just generally like people of color who did not vote for him. And he has no right to say that 
those people are not truly people of color because they don't vote for him. Like, while the policies he has seem to be much more friendly towards people of color than Trump's kind of more overt racism, still, you don't get to, like, say that. So, yeah, that's a no true Scotsman. Pretty bad take. Yeah, not cool. Not cool, Joe. No, no. that's That was a bad... And, it, and I, he apologized. He was like, I shouldn't have been such a wise guy. And it's like, yeah, Joe, probably not, my guy. Like, anyway, continue. Yeah, so the last thing I've got is Joe Biden on gays. Uh, I took this uh, first one from a CNN article. Uh, the presidential hopeful suggested public sentiment towards gay rights issues has come far in a short period of time saying five years ago if someone at a business meeting in seattle made fun of a gay waiter people would just let it go to which the audience vocally responded to the remark and some in the crowd said homophobic comments would not have gone unchallenged even before five years ago so this was a failed attempt or this was a failed appeal to popular opinion uh joe made an off-color joke with the attitude y'all agree with me right and that support did not coalesce yeah, so he, like, it's funny because he didn't even, he tried to make an appeal to popular opinion, but it wasn't even, like, a good, it, it wasn't even, like, an actual, like, I mean, he, he didn't even gauge the popular opinion correctly to do the fallacy. Yeah, it, it was what he thought popular opinion would be, and it just did not work yeah. for him. Yeah, so he, like, didn't even have a grip on what popular opinion he should be appealing to, which is kind of interesting and kind of funny. And then uh, the last thing I got here is a statement Joe Biden made in 2006 defending the Defense of Marriage Act. Uh, this act, which defined marriage as exclusively between one man and one woman, in defending the Defense of Marriage Act, he says that marriage is between a man and a woman. He, he said those words. And I would like to say that this is a straw man. Uh, marriage is a construct. Different different religions can define marriage in different ways, and as far as the state definition goes, that can change with the flow of public opinion. And in that same vein, this is a false dichotomy to present his definition of marriage in such a way. Either it's between a man and a woman, or it's not marriage. Uh, this was the same idea behind civil unions, an attempt to straddle the line between accepting the rights of homosexuals and the desire to create a separate but equal system. Um, but again, marriage is a construct, so you can't re restrict its legitimacy based on gender or sexual orientation. In that same interview, uh, Joe Biden's statement continued, Marriage is between a man and a woman, and the state should respect that. This is a red herring where he is dodging the issue of should gay people be allowed to marry and instead focusing on whether individual states uh, uh, have the right to say whether gays have the right to marry. So uh, thankfully, Joe Biden's issue, uh, thoughts on this issue have progressed. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I believe it was in 2012, he had a really nice meeting with a gay couple, uh, and I guess just finally actually meeting some gay people is... Uh, his opinion on the issue did a 180, and since then he's been a, a supporter of the rights of homosexuals. I mean, I'm like glad about that, but it's like, why do you, why do people have to meet other people in close proximity with them to like see their validity? Like, why can't, like, why does he have to sit down with gay people and be like, oh, you guys are just like two people 
in love like everybody oh, wow. else. I didn't even consider y'all human before, but now that I can see you are, yeah, you should have rights. Yeah, now that I can see that, you know, you speak and, you know, eat and do all the things that people do, and I can see that you're just two people in love, well, why didn't anybody tell me that? And I wouldn't have thought it was wrong. Like, I mean, it's insane to me that people have to, like, be directly affected or be directly touched by a group of people or a person to see that that person is a human and to advocate like for their rights. Like all these people who someone in their family dies of COVID and they're like, Oh, get the vaccine because they couldn't imagine other people going through that. So they had to have it directly touch them. Joe Biden had to sit down with a gay couple to be like, Oh yeah, you should be able to get married. Shoot been wrong about that so that's just an interesting part of human nature that does not make sense to me uh kelsey i did say a couple times marriage is a construct uh would you like to give your opinion on that considering you're married and i am not yeah yeah um do whatever you want yeah marriage i think marriage is a construct that some people find meaning in and some people don't and if you find meaning in it, then do it. And if you don't find meaning in it, then don't do it. And because it is a construct, it can be done in like a bunch of different ways. For instance, you can choose not to take your partner's last name. Or, you know, I didn't take my husband's last name because I personally couldn't I didn't find meaning in it because I found the idea to be antiquated. I'm already in my career, so it just seemed like a giant unnecessary pain in the ass. And I just didn't find meaning in that because I'm still a part of my family just as much as I'm a part of his and vice versa. So, but some people think it's great and they can't wait to change their name and they feel like it just gives them a sense of alignment with their partner that they didn't have before they were married. So... I think there's antiquated things about marriage that you can just kind of cast aside if they don't have meaning for you. And I think people should just do whatever makes them happy and whatever they feel will add meaning or confirm meaning in their relationship. I mean, some people are polyamorous and they have multiple partners and some people don't ever want to get married and some people do, but they don't want to have kids or, you know, I, me and my husband don't share any bank accounts our finances are completely autonomous like we obviously settle up at the end of the month but that was something that we we wanted to get married but we wanted to have this very independent autonomous interpretation of marriage so it being a construct is kind of freeing like do whatever you want and abide by whatever portions of it give meaning and you do it cafeteria style take what you want and leave the rest so yeah, totally agree with that. Totally agree with that, for sure. Do whatever you want. The world is your oyster. All right, just great to hear we're on the same page on that. Uh, once again, I, I am straight, white man, unmarried. I have all kinds of blind spots, so I, it's situations like this where I need someone else to keep me uh, straight on the issue. Yeah, and I'm like barely any better because I'm in a um, heterosexual relationship. 
so I at least pass as like heterosexual. Nobody is going to even really probably ever ask me what my sexuality is because I'm married to a man and I am also white. So I have tons of blind spots as well. I was also, we were both also raised in evangelical Christianity. So we've, we've both got tons of blind spots, but yeah, at least I can offer like a female perspective, um, for what it's, what it's worth. And yeah, I just think people should do like whatever they want. And if you're someone who is an evangelical Christian who wants to go get married in a church and wants to have as many babies as possible and wants to do whatever, like do it. If you want to take your husband's last name, if you want to be a stay at home mom, if you want to do like, do whatever you want. Like modernity is not threatening a traditional way of life. It's just not forcing a more traditional way of life on everyone. For people who like that, they can still do it and they can do it and be happy with what their life is. And for people who don't, they can do what they want. So I, you know, I think there's a misconception that people think marriage as a construct is threatening to the idea of marriage. And it's no, I mean, I don't see it that way at all. I think it's just opening up opportunities for people to interpret marriage in a way that's meaningful to them as a couple. And to their worldview and to their religious affiliation or their spirituality. So I think the people who are still, there are plenty, plenty, plenty of people who are still doing a very, very traditional idea of marriage where there's an exchange of rings and there's, you know, the nuclear family, but that just doesn't fit everybody. No, some people don't want that. Some people's sexualities don't allow that. They're there are gay couples who wanted to be able to get married and have babies, adopt babies and raise a family. They wanted that traditional way of life with a slightly different family dynamic. Or I, I don't want to minimize how different, you know, that would be because I can't speak to it. But I guess I'm saying like some people wanted aspects of that traditional American dream with two and a half kids and a white picket fence and they couldn't have it. So like, just because somebody is LGBTQ plus doesn't mean that they don't want to settle down and have babies and, and, you know, raise a family with a partner. Some don't, but some do. And so to not allow marriage to account or to extend to those people who don't fit the exact norm, they don't get to take the parts that they want. They have to just like leave everything. Like in another aspect of the marriage thing was... In hospitals, you had parents who did not approve of their child being gay or trans or whatever, who would not let their partners come see them in the hospital. And the partners couldn't do anything about it. It was like all up to the family because there was no union. There was no marriage there that allowed the partner to take precedence over the family. So there were other aspects. There's also tax cuts or tax breaks for people who are married. And you can't just exclude certain people from that from a governmental standpoint, from a just a life standpoint. Like just didn't mean to get on such like a big rant, but like just do what feels good. Do what feels right for you and just let people do what's right for them. Like it's not hurting anyone. Like somebody, a gay person, a gay couple adopting a baby does not affect you. If you don't, if you're not gay and you're heterosexual, you're straight, go marry somebody (laughs) 
that you're attracted to, go be in a heterosexual relationship and, you know, do whatever you want. But it does not affect you if somebody down the street from you has a different family dynamic. It doesn't. I once had somebody tell me, like, I was like, that doesn't affect you. And they were like, yes, it does. Because when America is not following the Bible, it affects the entirety of America. And I was like, that's the truly the dumbest thing I have ever heard. Yeah, I've heard that before, too. Like, truly. That is just the most... It's a stretch. (laughs) It's a stretch. It's like, it doesn't doesn't matter. Like, what... In this whole... I promise I'm going to bring it to a close here in a second, but this whole defense, like ardent, aggressive defense of the nuclear family, who cares? Who cares? Like, I don't understand, like, what the threat of having non-traditional families is. I think when I was really into, like... I was really sucked into, like, evangelical Christianity. I did. And I've gotten so far outside of it, I can't relate to that anymore. I don't understand. Like, the nuclear family, the Western way of life. Like, I don't understand why everybody thinks that all these problems that we have are because it's not, like, a man, woman, and two and a half kids. I don't understand where that correlation, like, comes from. I don't get it. Like, do you get it? Because there's this, like ardent and aggressive and like just absolute full commitment to the preservation of the nuclear family and i like don't understand it yeah it sounds like a slippery slope to me i don't see the connection yeah and and like i i just don't understand who cares like i don't understand who cares like who like who cares like what about having two moms is going to like hurt someone if they have two pair of two dads or or if they're in a polyamorous family, I mean, or a polygamous family, whatever. Like, if people have people who love them, like, if children have people who love them, they say it, like, takes a village. Like, I mean, if they have people who love them and support them, and they understand, like, kids are so accepting. You'll be like, oh, why does Uncle Rob have a husband? Because they love each other. Okay, can I go play with Legos now? Like, kids accept, like... It's not nearly, like, challenging for them or traumatic for them to just grow up in an environment like that. I don't know. It just, I don't understand it. I will turn off the rant before it turns into, like, another 20 minutes. But I don't understand the commitment to preserving the nuclear family above anything else. Even above, like, not wanting gay couples to be able to adopt children. Like, you'd rather leave children in the adoption system than to have them go to two loving parents or one loving parent. Like, I think single parents have a tough time adopting. Like, you'd rather them stay than have someone who loves them and will take care of them. I don't get that. I can't relate. Yeah, the concept is wild to me. Doesn't make sense. Anyway, that's my hot take on marriage and the wild idea that the preservation of the nuclear family is, like, the key to America's salvation because I just think that's dumb. So, hot take for me on that. I think that's all that we have for this episode, friends. Jake, you have anything else? Uh, nope, I, I'm all tapped out, Gilps. Perfect. Me too. Well, as always, everyone, thank you so much for listening. We know that time is the most precious thing that you have, and we sincerely appreciate you taking time to listen to us talk about this stuff. We don't actually know what the next episode is going to be, 
we again this is a week late because we ran into some audio issues we may pivot to an episode every three weeks i haven't mentioned that to jake but we may pivot to a more reasonable schedule because we're both really busy anyway whatever we'll keep everybody the whole five people that listen to this posted about the direction that we're heading and we are something to look forward to we are going to have a halloween episode for spooky season we may do a couple different spooky episodes we don't know yet but we're looking to have one that's called um logic is for witches and we are going to be talking about harry potter and jk rowling and all of her transphobic comments so yeah something to look forward to that may not be the very next episode but we've got some hot content coming your way so we again we are on instagram at at known sequitur pod we are on twitter at known underscore sequitur yep and we also have an email address that will be in the description of the episode we'd love to hear from you we'd love to hear about that weird thing that your uncle said that you want us to break down we'd love to hear if you hate the podcast if you hate us if you love the podcast if you love us tell us give us a follow we're going to try to be more active on those social media accounts. We're trying to decide the direction to take them. Nobody asked me for this explanation, but I'm giving it anyway. So, yeah, everybody, until next time, be blessed and stay logical. It's only logical. Logical.